Hello, Rebecca. Hi, John. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, it's the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items. It's Thursday, April 29th. John, what do you want to talk about today? Let's start out with some really good news. One of the co-founders of BioNTech, which helped create the first COVID-19 vaccine, says he's confident it will protect against the virus variant found in India. That is great news. That is great news. I also want to talk about a new survey of opinions on immigration from the Cato Institute. What news items stick out to you today? Well, I want to discuss a paragraph article that is provocatively titled, Is San Francisco Finished as the Capital of Tech? The answer is yes, by the way. <laughs> it is? Okay. It is. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that, but that's good to know. Uh, and then we'll wrap it up with an interview I did yesterday with the journalist Mickey Kaus. We spoke about the American Rescue Plan and potential 2024 GOP presidential candidates, including the author of Hillbilly Elegy, J.D. Vance. All right, let's go to the science and tech headlines. First, Bloomberg reports that, quote, the global chip shortage is going from bad to worse. That's bad news for tech companies and automakers. Apple and Samsung both warned that chip woes will cause their revenues to slide despite increased demand for smartphones. Meanwhile, Honda, BMW, Jaguar Land Rover Automotive, Volvo and Mitsubishi all recently idled some factories because of the shortage, which could last into next year. What's causing the shortage? As one analyst quoted by Bloomberg wrote, quote, COVID-19 is still a major consideration, but it is no longer the main bottleneck. End quote. One factor, chip factories use up a lot of water, and there's a massive drought in Taiwan, the mecca of chip manufacturing. That's interesting about the water, yeah. though. Yeah. Water's important. <laughs> Next, University of Chicago scientists announced a breakthrough in quantum technology, cooling thousands of molecules to the point where they start behaving like a single atom. They did this in part by constraining the molecules to a two-dimensional plane. The promise of quantum technology is based on the truly strange properties of quantum physics. In the place of a one or zero, a quantum computer, for instance, can apply both values at the same time. Such a next-generation machine would be incredibly powerful compared to today's computers. Its use could accelerate all kinds of calculations and make new discoveries possible. The research was published Wednesday in the journal Nature. I can just say this about quantum computing. I have no way to wrap my head around it. And so I go right to the end, which means it's like super fast. Yeah. It's beyond my ken. But the result, yeah. obviously, is, is fabulous. You can do computations that would take yeah. months in a matter of hours. So yep. the sooner we get there, the better. It's super fast and super cold. Yeah. So let's get to the news items. John, we've been talking a lot about the surge in COVID-19 cases in India. It's raging out of control, due in part to a variant there that seems to be more contagious than the original strain. But as we mentioned, we got some good news yesterday from the head of BioNTech, the company that worked with Pfizer on its COVID vaccine. Ur Sahin said they developed the vaccine with variants in mind, and he's confident it will hold up against them. How much weight does his assurance carry for you, John? A thousand percent. <laughs> Sahin and, and his wife, Aslam Teresi, were named last year the Financial Times People of the Year mm -hmm. for their work on the vaccine. And I, I think it's fair to say that he's responsible for saving, so far, hundreds of thousands of lives. And when it's all said and done, it'll be tens of millions of lives. So mm -hmm. of all the people in the world talking about vaccines, he's probably the most authoritative 
Now, according to the Financial Times report that's linked in uh, news items today, the Pfizer vaccine is not yet authorized in India. What's the holdup? I, when I read that, I thought that just can't possibly be true, but uh-huh. apparently it is true. Huh. I have no idea what the holdup would be given the situation there, which people describe as the apocalypse. Yeah. I suspect that if a gigantic U.S. military plane flew into Delhi and said, we have, you know, 600 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine, no one would say it hasn't been authorized. So according to the same piece, um, Pfizer-BioNTech is working with the United Nations-backed vaccine alliance Gavi to get more vaccines to low-income countries and aims together with Pfizer to produce 2.5 billion doses by the end of this year. And Moderna said yesterday that they would produce 3 billion doses next year. Yeah. Sahin said yesterday that they thought that they would need to produce a booster. Mm-hmm. So aside from the vaccine that they'll be producing, they'll also be producing a booster for those of us who had the Pfizer shot. Mm-hmm. The second thing that he said, aside from the vaccine working was that he thought Europe would reach herd immunity sometime in late July and perhaps sometime in August. I mean, that is just huge. And if you combine that with U.S. uh, reaching some kind of herd immunity, either late summer or early fall, that will lead, I think, to an explosion of economic activity. So it's, you know, it's really, really good news. And the news has been so bad. It has. Yeah. When uh, Sahin did the interview with the FT, it was like a yeah. like somebody going through the desert and finally getting to an oasis. I mean, it's just spectacular. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Item number two, San Francisco's status as the center of the tech universe was beginning to waver even before the pandemic. And after more than a year of remote work for many, it seems clear that companies no longer have to rent office space in one of the most expensive cities in the world, in order to recruit top talent. So, Rebecca, what do we think? Is San Francisco's reign over tech coming to an end? So the website Paragraph presents two opposing views on an issue. It's like two op-eds side by side. Yeah. As the San Francisco naysayer says, the capital of tech is the Internet. That is going to be the capital of tech. It's not going to be one city. Right. He also argues that the costs and downsides of San Francisco are growing and its relative advantages are shrinking. I mean, the median house cost is $1.4 million. It's business unfriendly. There's competition from other cities as well as the Internet. There's remote work making it possible to leverage those advantages. Right. I would say, though, that uh, what's his name? Leo, Leo Polovitz. He goes after government pretty vociferously for being hostile to startups, mentioning that Airbnb and Uber were practically hectored out of the city, to which I would counter that, you know, they're hostile to startups because those startups are unfriendly to business and family interests. I mean, I mean, they're not there doing God's work, that's for sure. I mean, what do you, what do you think? I mean, to me, I think that it's very exciting to imagine that San Francisco is not going to be the tech mecca of the world, that maybe we're about to usher in an era of mom and pop tech startups. San Francisco is not the city that it once was. Crime is out of control. So there's that. As you mentioned, there's the cost of living and so on and so forth. But 
The other thing is there are states and cities that are actively recruiting tech companies. And I think the point the fellow made there about the internet being the headquarters of tech is true. I'm reminded of the growing geospatial technology startup scene in St. Louis, which benefits from the fact that there's a National Geospatial Intelligence Agency in St. Louis. There's an academic community that has sort of sprouted up in support of that government agency, and it's still affordable enough to live there as a, you know, as a founder. We don't have to bemoan the state of San Francisco. We can, you know, get excited about the opportunities that are emerging for other uh, cities. I think it's good news. Long overdue. And it'd also be good for San Francisco. I mean, the, you know, the, yeah, rates, yeah. the rates will come down and yeah, sure. make the city more, more affordable. I mean, it really is astonishingly expensive. All right. Let's move on. For our last item, John, let's take a look at immigration. Earlier this week, the Cato Institute released its 2021 Immigration and Identity National Survey, which polled 2,600 adults in the U.S. Which results stand out to you, John? The sort of top line of the poll is that the respondents were asked, do you want no immigration? Do you want low levels of immigration or do you want high levels of immigration? And none was 9%, so one-tenth. 68% was low levels and 23% was high levels. So that's the top line. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about the poll from a political point of view is you see exactly how it plays out in the Democrat and Republican parties. Mm -hmm. On the Democratic side, 68% of strong liberals say it's acceptable to illegally immigrate to the United States. 55% of moderate liberals disagree. They think it's not acceptable to illegally immigrate to the United States. Now, the Republicans are almost exactly aligned with the Trump positions. 58% think that undocumented aliens should not be allowed to attend public schools. 61% oppose uh, birthright citizenship. You could go on and on. But the Trump position, if you will, is the one that Republicans overwhelmingly endorse. Okay. So in this piece, according to their data, the electorate or the populace, if you you want to call it that, was generally more opposed 40 plus years ago. They note in the Cato Institute report is that Changes in the average Democratic voter view accounts for the shift in favor of more immigration, and they trace this shift to around the year 2010, when Democratic Party slash voter support began to accelerate. When I think of 2010, I'm thinking like great financial crisis. Yeah. There was widespread job loss. There was a lot of financial instability, uncertainty about the future. I would have thought that that set of social and economic factors going on in the U.S. at that time would have contributed to a reactionary opposition to more immigration. But that's just me. I remember doing this when I was at the NBC News election unit and we looked at immigration and, you know, the idea of it was generally supported. And what's really changed is the reality of it. So people had in their minds back then, when far too long ago, that there was a process, that the process worked, and that, you know, if you followed the process, it was fine. But now there's a sense that the country has lost control of the immigration process and that it's basically anything goes. Is that an accurate impression? Or is that a... I don't know. Have you seen the pictures on the border? Well, I mean, there's pictures, but are those pictures representative of the daily reality? Well, I think the situation on the border is completely out of hand. 
And I don't think there's any question about that, actually. And I think that there's a general feeling that what process existed is fraying, if not broken. So you've had this hardening of positions, and that's sort of the loggerhead that we're at. Okay, John, so enough about immigration then. Last night, President Biden addressed a joint session of Congress, giving a kind of self-evaluation of his first 100 days and outlining his priorities going forward. But you spent yesterday getting an outside take on his administration, talking to Mickey Kaus about the American Rescue Plan. So why talk to Mickey now? Well, he wrote a piece about it at Kaus Files uh, on Substack and discussed the child income tax credit included in the American Rescue Plan that I I thought was interesting, and I wanted to get his take on that and on Biden generally and also on the Republican Party. There's a lot to dig into there, and so we'll take a quick break and then hear John's conversation with Mickey Kouse. We have a very special guest, my friend Mickey Kouse. He's the author of a legendary book, I would say, The End of Equality, which went a long way to setting the framework for welfare reform. He's been a journalist with a number of well-established institutions, including the Washington Monthly, Harper's, Newsweek, The New Republic, the list goes on. He is the proprietor of the legendary Kaus Files, which you can find at kausfiles.substack.com. We're very happy to have him on the podcast today. Mickey, welcome. Thanks, John. I was thinking about talking to you, and I go back to the 2020 election. We elected Joe Biden. I understand the Electoral College was closer, but in the popular vote by a significant margin, 7 million plus votes. And the reason that we did that was essentially to get rid of Donald Trump. So... You know, it's weird because we have a president who has fulfilled his mandate before he's taken the oath of office. So he's elected, he's done his job, and he comes forward with two obvious things, speed up vaccination as fast as possible, and then a continuation, essentially, I think it's called the American Rescue Plan, but it's essentially part two of what the Trump administration did. I think theirs was called a stimulus plan. And that got through relatively easily. And now we get to the hard part. What do you think are the hard parts for Biden going forward? Well, I think um, the overall price tag is pretty huge, $6.1 billion. Trillion. Trillion dollars, sorry. The critique I read this morning, which I think is accurate, is there's no one big theme. It's not like Lyndon Johnson establishing Medicare or Franklin Delano Roosevelt establishing Social Security. It's a grab bag of things, some of which are very good, some of which are very troublesome, with no sort of overwhelming theme. It's like spend five times as much money on everything and everything the liberal interest groups have dreamt up. And that's not very inspiring. Obviously, there are some parts that are very good. You know, Trump should have gotten rid of the carried interest loophole. So if Biden gets rid of it, that's a feather in his cap. I don't think the tax increases on the rich are particularly onerous. Clearly, Obamacare needed shoring up. There are also things that are very troublesome. The one that sticks in my craw most is this refundable child tax credit, which basically recreates the old welfare system where you give money to you know single parents and parents who do no work at all outside the home, uh, recreates the old welfare system, which had horrible consequences. And somehow the liberals have snuck this into the Biden package. Otherwise, it seems to me he's not changing society that much at all. Maybe that's what the voters want. They don't they want to spend a lot of money, but don't want any dramatic social change. How did the undoing of welfare reform sneak in? The basic rule is the left never sleeps. 
So the idea is that Clinton reformed welfare in 96, along with Newt Gingrich, but the left and academia did not rest. Uh, They were always promoting something called guaranteed child support, which is basically like welfare under the guise of, hey, we're giving the mothers the child support that their deadbeat dads don't give them. The left ginned up a bunch of studies from the National Academy saying, hey, it's great to give cash to parents. And they hit on a sort of perfect vehicle in this COVID bill where they could bury it in the COVID bill. They could bill it as temporary assistance, even though they wanted to make it permanent. And it's in this big bill, so it's barely even mentioned in the stories. Nobody knows that the child tax credit doesn't really have anything to do with taxes. It is sending cash directly to people, uh, whether they work or not. Normally, you'd think the right would immediately attack this, right? It worked for Gingrich. It's worked for Republicans. As a reporter told me, they have the cookbook on the shelf. They could just pull it down and tack it, and they haven't done it. And that's the great mystery. And the answer seems to be that the Republicans want to position themselves as a working class party, and they want to fight income inequality perversely for the Republicans. And this seems like a way to do it, coupled with sort of J.D. Vanceism. He talks about helping mothers stay at home, and this seems to dovetail with that. So there's a whole bunch of J.D. Vance right-wingers who are pulling their punches and even supporting this, uh, you know, Yuval Levin, Ramesh Panuru, a bunch of people at the National Review who love this. And then there are the natalists like Ross Douthat who just want to increase the birth rate. They think this will do it. It'll help us stand up to China and somehow replacing ourselves through births is very important to them. And part of it is is sort of a Catholic anti-abortion thing. So all those factors go into the stew. And the basic thing is the opposition hasn't showed up yet. Is this just UBI, universal basic income, and another set of clothes? It's a UBI for parents. And there's a big argument whether that means it's a slippery slope to the UBI for everybody. There are people on the left who think it should be, and a lot of people see it that way. It does erode the ethic of work. It basically says, if you have a kid, you can have a family where nobody has to go out in the workforce. You don't need any breadwinner. Complete contravention of the, the ethos of welfare reform, which was everybody has to work. And if you work, you should be able to live a dignified life. This says, no, you don't have to work. So you would think that ethic would gradually spread to everybody else. And the troubling trend is basically it takes a large part of the American labor force and says, you know, we don't expect you to work. We'll put you on the dole. Yet the same people tend to want to bring in immigrants who will do the work. So basically the the broad, vulgar caricature trend is Americans go on the dole, immigrants come on and do the jobs, and then the left attacks Republicans for thinking that they're being replaced. Well, in effect, they are being replaced. All right. You follow this stuff really closely. If we assume that Trump is not going to run, who on the Republican side do you think is beginning to get their act together for 2024? Like you, I do not believe that Trump is not going to run. Everybody says Trump's not going to run, but I don't believe them. Why wouldn't he run? Right. Um, This is going to sound crazy. I like two dark horses. I like J.D. Vance, Mm -hmm. who may run for Senate if he wins that Senate seat, which is a big if. I think he immediately becomes an important figure. And he has the Reagan-esque ability to say very nasty things in a very nice way. (laughs) It goes down easy. (laughs) are very, very, very edgy things, things that have traction. I worked for Tucker Carlson. I, you know, I, I like Tucker Carlson. I, I had a fight with him, but he is a very, very skilled rhetorician. And, you know, I just drove across the country and I listened to all the talk radio shows and it just convinces you how good Tucker is because they're all terrible. <laughs> they all start with a 10 minute rant. Right. It's the same junk you've heard a hundred times. 
And Tucker has something new and interesting to say every day. Sometimes it's a little crazy, but his things are well-written and you want to listen to him. So he'd be the perfect person to have in the Oval Office giving speeches. Having worked for him, I have some doubts about his managerial <laughs> But um, you'd have you could have Ron you could have Ron Klein take you know the Republican version of Ron Klein take that over. Um, I like Tom Cotton, except he's quite hawkish on foreign policy. I think Josh Hawley has blotted his copybook. I like Ron DeSantis, except I think his views on immigration, which are is sort of the big one of the big issues for me, are still a little obscure. I am uh, very dismissive of all the uh, old-style Lynn Cheney, Nikki Haley, uh, neocon foreign policy Republicans, but I'm still technically a Democrat, so it's not my party. I shouldn't give them advice. Right. And they wouldn't take my advice anyway. You know, it was funny when I was uh, working for Rupert in 2016, Roger Ailes had just been fired, and Rupert told all of us that we had to read this book Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. Literally every single senior executive at Fox was told to read the book. But he was then, and I think still is, you know, a huge fan of J.D. Vance. Peter Thiel started the Vance campaign essentially in Ohio with a $10 million independent expenditure. Um, you put those two things together, the Thiel Money Network and Rupert's Media Power, uh, J.D. Vance looks a lot more formidable in the Ohio Senate race than he otherwise might. What attracts you to him? You know, he is sort of the tribune of the people in flyover country, the working class people who were sort of ignored by the policy elites, including by me. I mean, I was a big neoliberal in the, not that I was important, but in the late 90s, I was a Clintonite who said, let's help people, not places, let them move out of Appalachia and move out of the Midwest to where the jobs are. And they didn't move. Right. <laughs> they didn't want to move. And J.D. Vance is the guy who says, no, we have to help them where they are. We have to, we can't just throw these people away. I was looking back on a, a dialogue I had with Walter Russell Mead, and, and Walter made a very important point, which is the elites of the country used to need the working class, either because they were unionized and the working class could basically cripple them if they went on strike, or they needed them in the army to fight wars. They needed their loyalty to the nation. They don't sort of need them anymore, and they will ignore them if given the opportunity, although just put them on the dole, give them a child allowance and say, sorry, that's what you're getting. And Vance is one of the people who said, no, that won't do, along with Trump on his better days. So uh, that's why I like him. And also, every time I hear him speak, he just seems so damn sensible. And he seems like an ordinary person with a family who wants to preserve his community and preserve a, a traditional way of life. And he just seems eminently sensible. He'd be very hard to attack. The question, of course, is if J.D. Vance wins in Ohio, that would be 2022. Can you, can you run for president having been in your office for, you know, a day and a half, right? Isn't that what Obama did? Uh, pretty much, yeah, pretty much. I tend to think that uh, in this fast-paced media landscape, John, you can get away with that sort of thing. Well, thank you very much, Mickey, for doing this. We'd like to have you on more than once, and uh, we'll be in touch, but thanks very much. Thanks, John. All right. So that's uh, that's it from us today. For more intel on some of the topics we discussed, check out John's newsletter, News Items. You can Google News Items, John Ellis, Substack, and definitely go for the premium subscription. I'm also counting on you, Rebecca, to uh, inform us about the water infrastructure required to keep the chip industry humming that's in right. Taiwan. I can confidently direct 
our listeners to investableuniverse.com and you'll have the story there. <laughs> so News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Billy Gardella, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back on Monday afternoon with more of the news. See you then.